most of you this morning know why. You know why we celebrate. You know why we come together on Easter. Find hope when all the world seems lost. I don't know if you can imagine, but just imagine being there on Palm Sunday. The week, the Sunday that started the Easter week. Imagine being there as Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people are singing his praises like we're singing his praises this morning. It's a celebration. It's a morning that's full of hope and excitement and expectation for what's to come. But imagine being there after. Because that celebration didn't last very long because Jesus was the kind of guy that ruffled feathers Jesus was the kind of guy that upset people because shortly after that celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem, we see him turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple courts in defense of his father, God. Shortly after that, we see him calling out the religious leaders of the time, the pastors, the priests. We see him telling stories, these parables that are very pointed. So pointed, in fact, that those he's telling them about want to kill him. They actually want to kill him right there on the spot, the Pharisees and the scribes. But they're afraid to. They're afraid to kill him because despite his seeming disregard for religious authority, despite his brashness, despite his boldness, despite the sometimes shocking things that he says out loud in front of everybody, the people seem to hang on every word that he says because no one has ever seen anybody quite like him. There has never been a teacher like Jesus. And had we been there, we would say, it has to be him. It has to be him, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the one who would restore Israel, the one who would free them from Roman occupation. At that time, in Jerusalem, they were celebrating Passover, the remembrance of when God rescued them out of Egypt, when God, with his mighty hand, crushed the most powerful nation on the earth and led his people to the promised land. That's what they were celebrating. And as they celebrated, they waited for another rescue. And so they thought it has to be him. They waited for God to free them from Rome, the greatest empire the world had ever known. They waited for the mighty hand of God again to crush Caesar and to restore his people to be the people of God. And for the last few years, they had been watching this man, Jesus, and many of them believed that he was the one who would do it. It had to be him. It started at a wedding when he turned water into wine, kind of like a party trick, a really cool one, the best wine that was served at the wedding But it was really just a preview of what was to come. But anyone that could do that, I mean, it had to be him, right? This was the guy 
that in an afternoon fed thousands of people with a kid's lunch. It had to be him. He gave sight to the blind. The deaf could hear. The lame could walk. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was teaching the Word of God in a way that no one had ever heard it taught before. He was preaching good news to the lost and to the poor. It had to be him. The stories people were telling about him were impossible. They were unbelievable. People were saying that he had walked on water. People said that his friend Lazarus had died and that Jesus showed up and raised him back to life. It had to be him. But then it was over. It was done in a day. He was gone. One day he was teaching. Then the next thing he's on trial for his life. And then in the afternoon, they're watching him bleed out on a cross in agony and in almost complete silence. All of his enemies, all of his skeptics, all the people that doubted him and them that believed in him mocked him and spit on him and taunted him and said, I told you so, and he did nothing. Why didn't he do anything? Why didn't he say anything? If he couldn't save himself, at least he could have said something biting or scathing or made the people who believed in him feel a little less stupid for having believed that he was the Messiah. But he didn't. He just died. And all that expectation and all that hope and all that anticipation of what he could be, what he had to be, died with him. So what do you do? When hope dies. Because it had to be him and then it wasn't. They thought it would be different, but it wasn't. So what do you do? Well, some people try to fix it. Try to make it better. Try to make it not so. Some people just deny it say it didn't happen. Some people try and come up with a plan B or a way to justify it or a way to say that it's okay and some people, maybe you, maybe me, we just walk away, confused, disappointed, disillusioned, trying to make sense of it, trying to figure out what went wrong, trying to tell yourself to be more skeptical next time, to be a little less trusting, to not get fooled like that again, to go on to live and just choose to live, but choose to live without that hope, because that hope is dead. That's how the first Easter began. That's how it started, in despair, in total hopelessness, in disillusionment, in broken dreams, in unmet expectations. Can anybody here relate to that? Does anybody here, even this morning, walk in disillusioned with broken dreams and unmet expectations saying, what do I do now? What do I do now? That thing that you hoped for, that thing that you hoped in left you wanting or it burned you, it hurt you in some way. Maybe that's a job or the lack of a job or your health or a relationship. Maybe it's the church. 
that hasn't met your expectations and has left you disillusioned about who God really is. Could be any number of things. So happy Easter. (laughs) The worst Easter sermon ever. (laughs) If it ended there. If it ended there. If it ended there, we'd all look for another way to celebrate Easter. We would not come here together as the family of God. If it ended there, we'd look for another way to celebrate Easter. Maybe we'd just celebrate bunnies and eggs and we'd buy a ham and we'd have lunch and hang out with our family and call it a day. That would be Easter. But it didn't end there. And as Pastor Matt Chandler says repeatedly, for good news to be good news, it has to invade dark places. And Easter starts in a dark place, a bad place. But it gets better. And by the end of the story, we get some very good news. Would you pray with me before we open God's word this morning? Heavenly Father, today is a day that we come together and celebrate We celebrate your amazing and impossible plan to fix what we've broken. We celebrate the fact that you stepped into our place to carry our burden, to take our punishment, to conquer death so that we could have life. You are so good and we are so grateful. So teach us this morning, would you speak to our hearts? Help us to see you, help us to celebrate you and bring you glory this morning. We pray this in the name of your precious Son. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 24? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's fine. You can just listen, or we've brought some for you. And if you look around the seats next to you, you'll probably find one nearby. You're welcome to use ours. And in fact, we'd love it if you'd take it home with you as our gift to you for Easter Even if you don't want to get one right now, you can grab one at the end of the service on your way out. We want you to know that they're there for you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. If you're using our Bible, it's going to be way at the back of your Bible in the New Testament on page 885. The Easter story is well known to almost everybody. We've heard it a lot because we read it every time this year, if no time else. But this morning, we're going to look at a lesser-known story of Easter. We're not going to look at the story of the women coming to the tomb and finding it empty. We're going to look at one of the lesser-known stories of Easter. And we're going to look at the reaction of two of Jesus' disciples, but two of the lesser-known disciples of Jesus, not one of the more famous 12 that are now 11. We're going to look at two of the followers of Jesus on Easter Sunday, when Jesus meets them in their moment of despair, when they have lost hope. Luke 24, starting in verse 13, read along or listen along, says this, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them said, 
One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. That's kind of ironic, don't you think? They didn't see Jesus, they said to Jesus. (laughs) This story convinces me that God is funnier than we give him credit for. It's a serious moment, but it's a funny picture. Here's why. Jesus knows that coming back from the dead is unexpected. Even though he said quite plainly and on three separate occasions, I am going to die, and I am going to come back to life. But even though he had said that, he knew nobody understood what he meant. Why? Because that's impossible. It must have been a figure of speech or one of those confusing things that Jesus said a lot of. So here are two of Jesus' followers. Passover is done. Jesus is dead. Somebody said he's alive, but they didn't see him. Time to pack up and go home. Time to walk away and recalibrate. Had to be him, but it wasn't. And while they're walking and talking about everything that just happened, Jesus shows up. Not in a cloud of glory, not in a blinding light. He just walks up beside him on the road and says, hey, What are you guys talking about? That's funny, right? That's not just me. It's not funny to them because they're hurting and they don't recognize him. And we could say they don't recognize him because they don't expect to see him because the last time they saw him, he was dead. But the truth is they don't recognize him because God keeps them from recognizing him. That's what it says. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There's a reason. We'll get into that. But look at their reaction. It says they're going to Emmaus. They're on a journey. They're walking together. They're talking and talking and discussing. They're deep in conversation. And Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they literally stop. It says they stop and look sad. And he says, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be the only one who doesn't know what we're talking about. How can you not know what we're talking about? That's the answer. How could you not know what's happened? And Jesus says, what? What happened? Now, what is he doing here? He's not just tormenting them, right? What is he doing? Here's the real question. What do you think happened? I would like to hear what you think just happened. And Cleopas tells him the story. Jesus was a great man. He was a man of God. He was a great prophet, and he was delivered up for execution. But we thought he was the one that would restore Israel. We had hoped he was the Messiah. We thought it would be different. 
and now he's gone, and our hope for him is gone, and we're sad. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Cleopas says to Jesus, how do you not know what's happened? And Jesus' response is, how do you not know what's happened? How do you not know? And then Jesus tells them the gospel, the story of who God is and his plan of salvation from the very beginning. He says, don't you see it had to happen this way? God said it would happen this way. All of Scripture, the entire narrative of the Bible points to this again and again and again. The crucifixion doesn't eliminate Jesus as the Messiah. It confirms it. The suffering of the Messiah had been predicted and patterned through the whole Bible. Now, I wish I knew exactly what Jesus said here. Luke summarizes it, and I wish he'd just tell us the whole thing. Because wouldn't you like to hear Jesus talk through all of Scripture and say how it points to him as the Messiah? I would love that. Maybe he talked about Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden, when God describes the fallout of man's rebellion from him and describes how the serpent will bruise the heel of the Savior, the suffering that will come before the Messiah crushes the head of the serpent. Suffering before victory. Maybe he would talk about Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son to God, only to have God send a substitute at the last minute to take his place, a ram a preview of the sacrifice that God would willingly make of his own son to substitute for all of mankind. There was no ram for Jesus. Jesus died. He was the substitute. Maybe he talked about Joseph and his story of suffering and slavery and persecution on his way to saving Egypt from a global famine. A preview of the salvation that would come through the Messiah, for the whole world. How is it that you don't see? Jesus is saying, look at all of Scripture. This was the plan. This was always the plan since you rejected me. The suffering of the cross and the tomb that would give way to the glory of the resurrection of the King. They continue their journey. It's getting late They invite Jesus to eat with them. And verse 30 says this, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Only after they begin to see the truth of who Jesus is through his word, only after they begin to see the truth of who Jesus is in their heart, does God allow them to see him 
in the flesh. Their eyes are opened literally and figuratively to recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world. It's like the lights go on. Jesus is alive. That's impossible and true. The story of who God is and what he's done, what we call the gospel, moves them from despair to hope in a moment. In a moment. And they head back to Jerusalem right then. It's dinner time. They just traveled there. And now they travel back to tell the disciples, he's alive, he's alive. And when you get there, what are the disciples saying? He's alive, he's alive. He appeared to Peter. And then they tell the story of their journey to Emmaus with Jesus. Jesus is alive. It's impossible and true. The resurrection moves us from despair to hope in a moment, in a moment, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is hope. It is, and as many of you know, it's the only real hope, because all of us have experienced the frustration of unmet expectations, right? Most of us have experienced genuine despair at some time in our life. Some of us can look behind us and see a trail of broken dreams in our life. We have plans, we have hopes, we have dreams, and sometimes those plans fail, and sometimes those hopes die, and sometimes those dreams don't come true, and we find ourselves feeling empty and lost. But here's the thing. Sometimes we're successful in our plans. Sometimes we realize our hopes. Sometimes we accomplish our dreams, and by every conceivable standard, we are successful. And I still feel empty and lost. Why is that? Even the biggest things and the best things that we can gather for ourselves here in this world right now are fleeting, and they do not last. And inevitably, whether it's through failure or whether it's through success, all of us arrives at a place where we find ourselves saying, I thought it would be different. I thought it would be different, and it's not. And we lose hope. We can't manufacture it. We can't drum it up anymore. We can't find it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. And every time we think we've grabbed it, it just slips through our fingers. And we look at Scripture and we say, it had to be him. It had to be him, and it was. Jesus is our hope in a world of hopelessness. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, because Jesus rose from the dead, he raises us from death to life. Do you hear that? Because Jesus is alive, we have life. We have hope. His work, his story moves us from despair to hope in a moment. The story starts with despair. It starts in a hard place. It starts in a dark place. So does our story. So does our world. We are constantly reminded, as we were this week in Brussels and in Baghdad, that we live in a broken, messed up world that is full of illness and violence and disappointment. 
That's the world that we live in. And it's occasions like this that each of us hears that part of our soul that cries out, there has to be more than this. If there's a God, this can't be what he intended, this world. And it's not. It's not what he intended. It's not what he intended at all. In fact, he had a a great plan, a great plan. And on page two of his plan, literally page two, we said we reject that plan. And we're going to follow our own plan, thank you very much. And we're going to exchange your great plan for our lousy plan. And we find ourselves separated from God because of that, because of our rebellion from him. And living in a world that reflects our poor choices. We live in a world that reflects our selfishness back on us. And we say, that's ugly. We live in a world that exposes all of the problems of choosing our way over God's way. And we look around and we say, I thought it would be different. I thought this would work out differently. I had a plan. And in our mess, and in our brokenness, and in our hopelessness, Jesus comes alongside us and says, hey, how's it going? How's it going with your plan? And our response is, not good. It is not good. And he says, I know. I know. You know how I know that? Because your plan to find hope apart from me is a bad plan. It is a really bad plan. Do you know why? Because there is no hope apart from me. None. And if you place your hope in anything other than me, you are going to be disappointed. And we are not going to be together. So I'll fix it. I'll fix it for you. I'll make a way. Don't worry about what it's going to cost. I'll pay for it. And he paid dearly. He paid with his life. Because he loves us desperately. That's the story of Easter. Easter changes everything. Do you see? If you can hear that this morning, then you either have hope because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or hope has been extended to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one of those two things. You either have it, or it's been extended to you. And if you have it, own it. Praise God for it. Claim it. Cherish it. Live with it. Live with hope. Because no one can take it away from you. Not ever. And if you don't have it, receive it. Hope means that this life is not all that there is for you. It means God intends something more. In fact, is preparing something more for those who follow him. He's preparing a life with him forever. A life with no more tears, a life with no more sorrow, a life with no more pain, a life with no more illness, a life with no more fear, a life with no more disappointment, a life with no more death. And I know what you say when you hear that. You think that can't be true. That's a fairy tale. That's impossible. Well, Jesus is alive. That's impossible. And it's true. That's Easter. In a moment, we're going to collect the connection card that you have in your worship folder. And this is your opportunity. 
This is your opportunity to respond. This is your opportunity to ask questions. This is your opportunity to ask for prayer, and we'll pray, I promise, we do every week for those requests. Maybe this is your opportunity to choose to follow Jesus. That would be my hope if you don't know him. Please don't leave today thinking that you're going to find hope somewhere else. Let me save you some time. You won't. You won't. He's the only hope. Family of God that's here this morning, I want you to hear this. There is no greater truth. There is no stronger or more powerful demonstration of love than God himself coming down to earth to live among us and buy us back. Where would we go to find a greater peace? Where else would we find a kindness that's as profound as the kindness that's showed to us by God? the God of the universe, who would exchange himself for us, who would trade places with us and say, I will take your punishment and your sin and the death that you deserve and I will give you my place as an heir to the king. What sweeter joy could there be? What greater hope could we hold on to than belonging to God forever, than to knowing knowing that we're in the palm of his hand and no one can take us away from him What more security do you want in your life? What greater hope do you hope to find in anything else? What could be better then than for the family of God to praise God together about these great truths? That's why we're here. What could be better or sound better than God's people grateful for his impossible gift of salvation singing praises to our king? What could be better than that? What could sound better than that? We were lost. We were in despair, but now we're found. The gospels moved us from despair to hope in a moment. We were found and adopted as children of God. So praise God. Praise God, who is more glorious than we can imagine, who has conquered death, who's made it possible for us to be with him when the alternative was to be separated from him and his goodness and his love forever. That's what hell is, separation from Almighty God forever. And he rescued us out of that. So praise God, the real king, the one to whom we surrender completely. Why? Because we trust that his plan is better than ours. Because it is. Your plan, my plan, ends badly. His plan is impossibly good and true. I'm going to invite the worship team forward, and I would ask if you would pray with me right now. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, you are too good to be true, and you're true. So we praise you. I pray that we would lift your name up in this place and that you would be glorified through our praise of you. I pray that, Father, (laughs) we don't get it. You are amazing. It is a fairy tale and it's true. Doesn't mean it's not hard for us, but it means we always have hope. While you have your eyes closed and your heads bowed, maybe you're listening to this conversation about hope and Jesus, and you want that.
You want to live with that kind of hope, the hope of knowing that this, what you're going through right now and living through right now is not all there is. If that's you this morning and you feel God pulling at your heart this morning, I would just invite you to pray this prayer with me. It is not a prayer that saves you. It is belief and trust in God. We believe in what he has done for us out of love for us. But if you're not sure how to express that to him this morning, would you pray this along with me? God, I know that I have rejected you. I understand that you love me anyway. You love me enough to send Jesus to die. You love me enough to pay the penalty for my sin against you. God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. It seems impossible. It seems too good to be true, but I believe. So I surrender my life to you this morning. I want you to be my king. I want to follow Jesus. If you prayed that prayer this morning, We'd love to know. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to answer questions that you might have. And I would just encourage you to include that on your connection card this morning. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for you and we just praise you. You are a mighty king. You're too good for us. You love us anyway. Salvation is too good for us. You offer it anyway. So Lord, let us praise you and worship you now. Amen. I'm going to call the ushers forward to take our offering. If you're a guest with us this morning, please, there's no expectation or obligation to give. This is for our regular attenders to give back to the Lord from what he's given us. But we would love to receive those connection cards from you this morning to know that you were here. And I would just invite you now into worship of our King.